Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode deals with serious and distressing content. Listener discretion is advised. I heard a single gunshot. Adrenaline just starts pumping through your veins and I just started running. I had um, minutes to live. You know, am I going to die or what? I mean, I, I look back at it now and I thought, you know, how did I ever survive that? This is How I Survived. Stories of everyday people and how they survived against the odds. I'm your host, Beth Young. I think that I probably survived for a reason. How I Survived. In 2008, Aussie photojournalist Nigel Brennan travelled to Somalia, Africa to take pictures of the war-torn country alongside his colleague Amanda Lindout, a Canadian journalist. In the grips of famine and humanitarian disaster, the nation was in crisis. Four days in, the pair left the capital city of Mogadishu in an armoured vehicle with their driver, two security guards, a translator, cameraman and a local fixer to visit a camp for displaced people. Around five kilometres outside of the city, Nigel and Amanda were told that the two security guards weren't going to continue the journey with them and they'd need to go another five kilometres alone to meet a different security detail. Although Nigel and Amanda knew it was a risk, they kept driving along the dusty, empty road. I can remember seeing a car parked off to the left as we came over the top of a rise, flashing its lights, and I presumed that that was um, our security detail. And continued to play with my camera, deleting images from uh, the previous day's shoot. And obviously our car came to a stop. And as I looked up from my camera, I then noticed that there were six or seven guys pointing AK-47s at the vehicle, faces completely covered. Um, And I think my brain really just completely um, switched off from the shock because I think I was acutely aware that something was was wrong, but... um, couldn't compute quick enough. All five of us were taken out of the vehicle and pushed down onto the grounds, face down, um, AK-47 in the back. Shoved back into their car, guns still pointed at them. They'd been taken hostage. Initially, we were taken to a compound, so it must have been after a 20, 30-minute drive. Um, We were taken to a fairly ramshackled um, compound with a small building inside the compound with um, three rooms. Um, Amanda and I were put in one of the rooms and it was later that night when the, um, I think there was um, four of them that came into the room. 
uh, then accused us of being spies. I think um, my mind was trying to comprehend what was going on. Um, it may sound really silly, but um, at first I was actually more concerned about my camera gear than I was about my life. Um, I'm thinking maybe they were just going to rob us and then let us go. After the shock was the disbelief, um, probably in the next, um, in the first 12 hours, the realisation that we had been kidnapped. Um, so I think in your mind, you try and create, um, or you try and reason with yourself, you know, like, was this a dream? Was I going to wake up? Was this real? Um, and that sort of changed as the kidnapping went on. I think, um, you know, for the next few days, there was shock, disbelief, um, that turned to anger and then guilt and shame, obviously what I was putting my family through. The conditions at the start weren't too bad. Like, that sounds funny, but um, I guess we were given a mattress to sleep on. We were given clean water. We were given food. Um, we were allowed simple privileges like going outside twice a day. Um, but yeah, look, we were looked after. Um, there was obviously the threat in the first 24 hours that um, if the ransom wasn't paid within um, a very short period of time that they were going to execute both of us. Back home in Australia, Nigel's mum and dad, Heather and Jeff, received a phone call that would change their lives. Their son Nigel had been taken hostage by Somalian rebels and there was a ransom of 1.5 million US dollars on his head. Amanda's family in Canada were told the same thing. Both Nigel and Amanda knew their chances of getting out alive were now in their family's hands. Obviously, I was very aware that the Australian government and the Canadian government don't pay ransoms for their citizens. I explained to the kidnappers that it was... that. It was fairly important that my family know that I was alive um, for negotiation purposes. I was allowed to speak to my sister on day 10. Hello. Hello, Nigel. Hi, Nigel. Ma'am, is it good to hear you? Nigel, Nigel. Hello, how are you guys? <laughs> it yeah. is so good to hear you. I want to tell you something, mate. Mum and Dad love you beyond measure, okay? I need for you to know that and believe that, okay, mate? We all love you. I know that, I know that, I know that, I know that. Uh, speaking to my sister on the, on the phone, it was devastating because I was very aware by then that um, I'd basically just... I don't know how to describe it. It's like lobbing a, a hand grenade into your, your family home and watching it blow up in front of you um, because I was just, you know, I was pulling apart their life. Um, my parents who had just retired um, three years earlier, I was very aware that I was potentially going to um, destroy their retirement financially. Um, so it was hard not to be upset. Um, and... I guess empowering as well, just to hear a, a, a familiar voice, but um, heartbreaking to know that, um, you know, I basically turned their lives upside down. While Amanda and Nigel's families scrambled to get the money together, the days turned into weeks. 
Almost five months later, Nigel, Amanda and their three Somalian colleagues were still languishing in captivity. Since that one phone call with his sister, Nigel hadn't spoken to anyone in his family. Depression had taken its hold and he was having torturous dreams about being back at home with friends and family in Oz before waking up and realising he was still in a living nightmare. Then, one day, their three Somalian colleagues were removed from the house. We were informed the following morning that all three of them had been executed. Also, Amanda had... um, She'd already had one attempt on her life where she was driven out into the bush. Um, So, obviously, the kidnappers were frustrated that the Canadian government were not... um, cooperating or her family were not cooperating um unbeknownst to me uh, right at the start my father had made a uh, an offer of twenty five thousand dollars um which was really put a, a safety net under me i guess kidnappers were getting frustrated they took her out um threatened to kill her um then put her on to the phone to her mother and explained that they would execute her in seven days if there wasn't some sort of offer. Mom, listen, listen to me. Okay, okay. okay. Close if, if you guys don't pay one million dollars for me by one week, they will kill me, okay? Tonight, they have brought me out to kill me. But... They've just given me one more chance to call you guys. Amanda, Amanda, stay strong, stay strong, hun. We were obviously very concerned for our lives and we made a decision that um, the only course of action that we really had was um, to escape. And I thought the likelihood of us dying in captivity was fairly high. Um, our kidnappers had actually said at one point that... Uh, they would get a ransom for us and then would execute us. So from my point of view, I thought if I was going to die, I was actually going to make them work for it. I wasn't just going to take a bullet to the back of the head. So that's when Nigel and Amanda, through hushed whispers, got to work to cook up a plan of sorts. Noticing a weakness around the bars of a window in the bathroom, Nigel slowly chipped away at the mortar to loosen the bars enough to gently pull them out. He then placed them back so no one would notice. Once their escape route was ready, Nigel and Amanda decided they would wait for midday prayers before fleeing. The plan was then to seek refuge in a nearby mosque. And unfortunately, it didn't quite come off as as we had planned. Having got out the bathroom window after Amanda, she quickly um, made me aware that the young boy next door had started to scream something in Somali. So really, um, I guess the body goes into shock again and that um, sense of fear takes over and adrenaline just starts pumping through your veins and I just started running. Um, not really sure where we were running to. With their captors close behind, Amanda and Nigel made it into the mosque. Once they were inside, there was complete pandemonium. As locals tried to protect them from their kidnappers who waved AK-47s wildly. There were particularly three, uh, three men at the start who you know, put their own lives at risk. 
um, by manhandling these two young guys with AK-47 so that um, we can be protected. Um, and for a, look, for a short period, it actually looks like we were going to get away with it. It was going to be the, the you know, the great escape. And then to see the, I guess the, the head guys of our group come in and uh, they were furious, absolutely furious, and we didn't arrest our captors um, in a massive way. They were incredibly pissed, um, and Amanda was dragged out of the mosque. Um, I was, you know, both of us were being slapped and kicked and screamed, you know, screamed at. After I lost, very shortly after I lost sight of Amanda, um, I heard a single gunshot and presumed that she had just been executed outside and was very aware, well, felt very aware that I had um, minutes to leave um, and was incredibly calm. Um, it's funny how I think uh, we all fear death for some reason, um, even though we're all going to die, but uh, was surprised at how incredibly calm I was and how clear my thoughts were. Um, I can still remember my thoughts were uh, just wanting to to be able to get my hands on a phone and call my mum and dad and tell them how much I love them and just ask for their forgiveness for the pain and I guess anguish that I put them through for those last five months. Um, and was walked out of the, the compound and to my surprise saw the two cars that were always transported in and saw Amanda, you know, she was in the back seat of um, the Land Cruiser, still fighting, still trying to get away and was bundled in beside her and um, I guess had a you know, surreal moment when I looked at her and could see that she'd been punched in the face and her eye was starting to swell up and she looked at me with the most stupid grin on her face um, and no word of a lie looked at me and said fuck that was intense and I laughed at her and said yeah that was pretty fucking intense um, and I guess we sort of grabbed each other's hand and and I'd said to her you know at least we had, at least we had a shot you know we were so close to, to pulling it off having so very nearly escaped Nigel and Amanda were taken back into captivity. But they'd embarrassed their captors and the escape attempt became a significant marker in their time as hostages, where they went from being treated humanely to being treated worse than animals. You know, we're put on a starvation diet, really, just enough food to to keep us alive. Um, The water that we were given was no longer clean, filtered water. So, you know, mosquito larvae used to come in my water bottle um, and then there was the the, the mental um, torture that began so sleep deprivation just in constant fear you just never knew what sort of personality you were going to get from one day to the next um, and particularly during uh, you know days of fasting when the, the young guys were, were just so cranky um, and obviously then the, the physical stuff as well. So coming in and being abused and punched and um, uh, obviously having to listen to them mistreat Amanda as well, which was um, you know fairly horrific. On a harrowing phone call home, Amanda begged her mum to pay the ransom. <laughs> Amanda, Amanda. Help me, help me, 
and chained in a nearby cell while listening to Amanda being tortured and sexually assaulted. Moved from house to house, the only time he'd get to see her was when they were being transported. But they did manage to communicate using a copy of the Quran that was passed between them by the guards. They'd write numbers on the front that related to page numbers and then underline words on those pages to make sentences. The messages were really to, to keep each other's spirits up. Um, I always tried to inject some humour, I guess, in my messages and just saying to Amanda, you know, um, I'm still here, I love you, we're going to get out of here. Um, people are doing everything they can for us. So it was, yeah, it was, it was really a spirit lifter. Back home in Oz, Nigel's parents were still trying to raise enough money to get him released. He knew it would take time for them to get $1.5 million. As more weeks and months passed and eventually turned into a year, Nigel's relationship with his captors became more and more complicated. As a, as a hostage, your whole um, survival depends on them liking you. So for me, it was about you know showing empathy and, and getting to know them as, as much as I could. Um, you know, and for me, that was sharing food or asking them about um, their their lives and their families and those sorts of things. Then on November 26, 2009, after being held hostage for 460 agonising days, Nigel and Amanda were told they were being moved. Nigel thought they were going to be handed over to the Somali terrorist organisation Al-Shabaab and braced himself for yet more days in captivity. It was late in the afternoon. I was um, told to, well, I was basically frog-marched out of the room and put into the room next door, and they tried to take off my um, ankle chains, which had been on um, pretty much for the last 11 months. Um, they were finally cut off with a hacksaw, was stripped and put into new clothes and then pushed into our vehicle with Amanda. Um, uh, were then driven for, I don't know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, taken out into the bush and then put into a, a vehicle that I'd never seen before with two guys in it who I'd never seen before. We drove down the road for about five kilometres and then we were surrounded by what seemed like 50 civilians with AK-47s. Um, and that's when I was like, oh my God, this is obviously Al Shabaab. Ripped out of that vehicle and put into a Toyota, um, where a guy said to me, because um, both Amanda and I were probably at this stage fairly hysterical, um, he said, what are you, Why are you upset? And he said, You're free. And it wasn't until Amanda was handed the phone and spoke to her mother um, that I guess, you know, the penny dropped. Finally free, Nigel and Amanda received more incredible news. Their three Somalian colleagues hadn't been executed. Their captors had played a horrifying mind game with them. 
Thankfully, they'd been released and were very much alive. Amanda and Nigel had been freed after their families had paid the hostage takers almost $600,000. Driven over the border to Kenya, the pair was taken to a hospital where their families were waiting. After 15 months in captivity, Nigel was finally able to see his mum and sister Nicole and hold them in his arms. Seeing my mum and my sister after such a long time was, um, was, look, there's probably a little bit of shock that we had actually been released. Not a hell of a lot was said um, in those first few minutes. It was just, a, I guess, a hug and a kiss and relief to, to see my mum and my sister and um, probably in the back of my mind a little bit of concern to see, I guess, how much stress um, they had been carrying as well. To go from complete isolation and to be thrown back into society was incredibly strange. Um, I know at one stage one of the extraction team could see that I was quite distressed and he, he'd actually asked if I was all right and I said, I just I feel like my head's going to pop because there's just this information overload. The, the guy was actually a New Zealander and he said, well, just tell everyone to go away. And I said, no, I don't want anyone to go anywhere. Like I've been isolated for such a long time that, I, you know, I'm just finding it um, really difficult to comprehend with all of the conversation. And, and by that stage, you know, 15 months in captivity, my vocabulary had obviously shortened. I sort of picked up a stutter a little bit, um, probably from being um, so anxious and nervous for, for such a long period of time. One of the things that I was desperate for in captivity, and um, I have a, uh, a weakness for salt and vinegar chips, um, and I also have a weakness for, um, for good beer. And I think it was oh, probably six or seven days out of captivity. Um, I was invited to the Australian consulate's um, home for a dinner. And they said, can we get you a drink? I said, yeah, I'd love a beer. And so I was brought a glass of beer. Um, and after taking the first sip, I nearly spat it out. <laughs> and I can remember saying to them, what beer is this? And they said, oh, it's, it's Victorian bitter. And I said, surely there's got to be a better beer in the house than this rubbish. Which they replied to me, no, that there wasn't. <laughs> While plans were made to get Nigel home, he met with the Australian Federal Police and government officials. He and Amanda also debriefed with a psychologist where they spoke about their time in captivity. We did um, psychology sessions together because I guess for me one of my things um, that I wanted, needed to talk to Amanda about was survivor's guilt. Um, obviously knowing that she was being sexually assaulted and potentially raped and I felt that I hadn't done enough to protect her. Um, and I guess realised that after speaking to Amanda that she'd sort of said, you know, what could have you done? Um, and I guess that, that comes back to that whole male instinct of, you know, uh, wanting to be the protector and I, I couldn't protect her. Finally, after 10 days in Nairobi, Nigel was able to fly home and see the rest of his family, including his dad who'd fought tirelessly to get his son released. Thrust back into everyday life, Nigel tried not to dwell on his experience and instead looked forward. 
writing a book, The Price of Life, and becoming a motivational speaker. So once I got out of captivity, it was like, well, I need to move forward and and look at this from a point of a, uh, of survival and not as a victim. And I and I was also very aware too. If if I acted like a victim, my family probably would have, um, you know, all told me to take a teaspoon of cement and toughen up. Writing the book was actually cathartic because it. Um, it allowed me to emotionally release a lot of stuff that I didn't, um, that I that I held on to really in captivity because I was terrified about having a mental breakdown in captivity. It was almost like a survival, um, intuitive survival sort of technique that I didn't allow myself to cry and um, didn't really emotionally break down in captivity, even though I probably should have at times. As Nigel moved on with his life, Canadian police lured one of the kidnappers, Ali Omar Ada, to Canada and arrested him for hostage-taking. In December 2017, Ada was found guilty for his involvement as negotiator in the kidnapping and was later sentenced to 15 years jail. Amanda and Nigel went to the trial where they read victim impact statements and both said they forgave him. He would have been sitting, you know, no further than five metres away from me. So, yeah, it was it was a bit strange, I think, at first um, because I had always in captivity been submissive um, with my posturing and never looked them in the eyes. So it was a bit um, confronting while I, whilst I was giving testimony to, to sort of look at him. Um, look, I, I had got to a place of forgiveness many years ago. Um, I came out of captivity, was incredibly angry and was having quite dark thoughts about how I wanted my kidnappers to, to you know, really suffer a, a fairly horrific slow death. Um, and I realised after a few years that the only person that was affecting was me. Um, because I was spending so much time and so much energy and and really a lot of negative energy. Almost 10 years on from his release, Nigel lives in Tasmania, Australia, with his wife Alana and young son Rumi. Life now is, um, look, I've got to say it's um, fairly beautiful. I have a great partner who um, we had a little boy uh, just over two and a half years ago, it feels nice to um, to actually put some roots down and, and have some stability and um, I guess uh, looking forward to, to spending time particularly with my little boy and watching him grow and um, creating a, uh, I guess, a bubble of love. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe so you don't miss more incredible stories of survival. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review. It really helps. time 
on How I Survived. Three-year-old Aurora Lee Kyle was last seen at the family's property near Warwick around 4pm yesterday. There were serious concerns for her welfare given the thick bushland and remoteness of the area. And in that moment, the whole world stopped. It took me to this place of death and grief and it was pitch black and it was cold. I can't lose my granddaughter. How I Survived. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.